Um, I entitled today's message, Shout to the Lord, and we're going to talk about the famous walls that came tumbling down in Jericho. However, what we also are going to do is examine that and see if that is a legitimate story. We're going to dive through and do some uh, archaeological discovery, talk about what they have found throughout the years. We're going to talk about the debates that rage in those circles, and we're going to find out what God may want to share with us through this ever popular story. So if you've heard this before, you are probably in the majority. However, I would ask that you keep your heart soft and open to what God has to say to you today, because you're engaging with a story in a very different place in life. So would you open up your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter six, verse one, page one, five, four, and the Bible's handed to you, 154. Joshua chapter 6 verse 1 and I'm going to begin with a concept Um, I believe that many of us and certainly all of us at some times are doing Christianity wrong And what I mean by that is that if your Christianity is boring mundane and exhausting we're doing it wrong That is not at all what God designed God designed Christianity to be exciting, adventurous, because we're following a God who is afraid of nothing or no one. Also, the whole idea is that God is doing the heavy lifting. We get to play along. I want to consistently tell you throughout this whole series of Joshua, the same point over and over. We are following God in obedience. God has not given us this job to just go out and try to think of a bunch of stuff to do for him or to go save the world. There is only one savior of the world. That is Jesus Christ. It's not you. It is not me. It does not rest on our shoulders. It rested on the shoulders of the one who died on the cross. That payment is done. And we do not save anyone. Amen. It is Jesus Christ. We don't carry that weight. So our Christianity should be much more lighthearted and filled full of hope. But for too many of us, we allow it to fall into drudgery and boredom. I don't think that's at all what God had in store. When I read through the people that were obedient to Jesus Christ, obedient to the God of their forefathers, I read people like Joshua. Joshua had a pretty exciting life. His life was pretty wild. It was pretty much out there. And he was on the cutting edge of what God was doing. Now, what we have been trying to do here at Bridgeway amongst the staff is really begin to try to work with the promptings of God. Different staff members have had different uh, engagements with the Lord um, in trying to say, God, are you talking to me? Are you asking me to do something? This is the Christianity that becomes exciting. If you are consistently saying, Lord, I want to know what you want me to do. I want to know how it's going to happen. I want to know all the outcomes before I take one step out of this door. Your Christianity will die. It will be boring. You will relegate yourself behind glass to just watch the world and not engage. It's very hard to love a God from that posture. However, if you are operating out on a limb... Because God is walking out into deep waters. Then it gets exciting. Just this last week, I was talking with Pastor Russ. He said, you know what? I followed a prompting this last week. Because I went into a coffee shop and there's this guy there. This guy that I see all the time. 
And yet, every time I go in, for some reason, he always catches my attention, and I know that he's there all the time. And I'm feeling like God is asking me to say hi to him. I don't know why. I don't get it. I don't even know who the guy is. And that's awkward, right? I mean, why are you just going to walk up and say hi to somebody? They didn't ask you to come over. They're like, who are you? I'm trying to drink my coffee. Get out of here, right? So he runs the risk, but he felt the prompting of God, so... He decides that he walks in, he goes, I'm going to go say hi to the guy. Ends up uh, saying hi, introducing himself. They end up having a sit-down talk, find out the guy's a believer. He's a wonderful guy. They got in this huge conversation, and he was able to encourage him. And it was absolutely what God wanted. That's interesting. Just getting up every morning and doing your same old thing, going to church on the weekends, going back, doing the regular thing, that's dull. A couple weeks ago, Jenny, our children's director, she gets this prompting by God to get up in the morning. She would much rather sleep in. She never sleeps in, finally had an opportunity, got one chance, and God said, not today. Made her get up, cancel all her plans, and spend time with her kids and say, what do you want to do today? As they were going through their day, she was driving, and in front of her was a gentleman who on his car was a series of bumper stickers that let everyone know in the world that he hated Christians. Uh, A lot of stuff about paganism, a lot of stuff about witchcraft. And she said, as I was driving behind him, I could literally feel hate emanate from his car. So she started praying for him. So she's praying for him as she's driving down the road. And when they get to a light, he goes one direction, she goes the other direction. She pulls in, stops, and he pulls in right next to her. Uh, she gets out of the car, she has the kids, and normally every mom, when you have kids, you're hyper-protective, right? That's the mama bear instinct, right? So you're going to want to shield and keep them away from any danger. This guy steps out of his car, and he approaches her. And And she completely is not nervous. She's completely locked in with what God has at this moment, completely unlike a normal mom, right? And she says, uh, he says to her, um, I, I'm trying to think of how it started. I think the issue was, he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? Right off the bat. Now, it's not from anything he saw in the car. She said, yes. As a matter of fact, I was praying for you as I was following you. And they began to have a very short dialogue. He said, what church do you go to? She said, I go to Bridgeway. He said, you're the third person that has told me that. And she said, she goes, out of nowhere, I felt God asking me to say this. She goes, well, you better start listening. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So, (laughs) she said, God is trying to get your attention. She goes, then I felt really awkward and grabbed the kids and walked away. (laughs) And went to the store. Now, that type of Christianity is different. The following on what God is asking you to do and being so obedient that when God asks you to do something outside of your comfort zone and you chase after him, that makes a difference. Joshua is living that kind of life. He's now stepped into the promised land, seen miracles. And then as he moves forward, God starts asking him to do the most ridiculous, stupid things in the world. He keeps having him do unusual things to prepare in quite a different way than he ever wanted to prepare for a fight with Jericho. 
He's asked them to circumcise all the crew. He's asked them to have a party of a, a celebration called Passover. When he gets near Jesus, Jesus asked them to take off his sandals. All this, you're going, how is this preparing me for war? I don't get it. We're all right here in the dangerous grasp of Jericho, this impenetrable city, the mighty citadel on the plains right there as we need to go into the promised land. We've got to fight this city. What are you doing, God? But God kept asking him to do these strange and unusual things. We now have it to the day that they're going to begin this mighty war. And God has a whole series of weirdness still left up his sleeve. Let's just turn to Joshua 6.1 if you haven't already. We're going to read the first two verses. Um, and let me give you the fill in the blank before we move on. On your sheet, it's this. We must follow God right through to victory. We must follow God right through to victory. The definition of success is obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Right? Obedience to Jesus Christ is what matters. Not adding to your plate, not trying to do extra, not trying to run around and do things God never asked you to do. You see, God builds in health into the life of a believer. I see so many believers that are unhealthy. They're running ragged. They're torn apart. They have no peace. They have no settledness of their spirit. They're underperforming for God. They're constantly chewing themselves up. That is not what God set in place for you. How do I know that? Because he's the God of creation. You go, I don't get what's the tie in. God instituted things like Sabbath. We don't Sabbath. We're workaholics. A while back, I was reading a study that was done on the Bedouin people in the Middle East. And their whole life follows the cycles and rhythms of nature. As a people group, they're nomadic and they move around. They rise early in the morning when they have light. The minute it begins light, they start their day. They go out and they work like crazy. They do hard labor. And you all know the difference between being exhausted at the end of the day because you did a job well done and then being exhausted and feel like you got nothing done. They have a long, hard day. God believes in hard work. But it is satisfying to them. When the light begins to dim, their jobs shut down. They then gather around because they do not carry electrical light. They have to gather around the fire. They gather their whole family together. The kids can play together. They gather together as a community for safety. And they communicate and share and talk and have a healthy community, and they go to bed and get up the next day and do it again. They follow the patterns that God has of rest in their lives, and I would suggest that they're far more healthy than we are. We must live according to God's design and not fight against it all the time, just hoping that He'll love us more if we do just a few extras. Let's dive into this. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Well, that just sounds terrific. Right? He just said, Hey, you got victory. Everything's great. They're scared to death. They're locked down. They think you're going to lay a siege. But I've already taken it. And he says to Joshua, It's as good as done. 
So everything should have been easy from that point on, right? Certainly not. Let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you would take us back in history and show us what an amazing God you are, that you are the God of the impossible. That, Lord, that you have designed into our lives you, power, excitement, adventure, and joy. Jesus, you came that our joy might be full. May we drink of that this morning. In your name, amen. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. The modern style of warfare in that day is siege. Everybody know how siege works? Real simple warfare style. You can't get in the building, so you wait them out. You cut off their food supply. If you can, you cut off their water supply. They starve to death. They have to come out. You kill them. That's how a siege works, right? Real simple, not that complicated. So Jericho sees two million people marching through. Now they're going to send a contingent of their army, right? Well, Jericho is assuming that they're going to come and lay siege to their city. So they've shut the doors. They have huge stores of food. They're ready to go. But that's not at all what happens. But it sure looks like it up front. Now, remember, they are terrified of the Israelites, not because of the people, but because they believe that God is with them. If God is with them, something weird could happen and it could go badly. So they're terrified of what is about to occur. That is God's psychological warfare to keep them in their place while God is going to do his little thing. All right, moves on. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, meaning watch this. I have delivered Jericho into your hands. It's a done deal. Along with its king, along with its fighting men. So here's my plan. I want you to march around the city once with all the armed men. Do it for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout and the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. That's a weird plan. Now, after all the weird stuff God has asked Joshua to do, maybe Joshua has now given up on reality, right? Is he just goes, you know what? Fine. I'm sure it was going to be something weird like that. (laughs) Or maybe he's still trying to hang on to some semblance of order and he's thinking, God, really? Come on. Why do you keep doing this to me? I'm a military strategist. I fight for a living. Darn it. These people, I've been doing this for a long time. Now I'm going to go lead them and this is my plan. Guys, we're going to go for a walk. Well, then what happens? Well, we go home. Well, then what do we do in the next day? We go for another walk. Well, I've already seen that side of the building. I don't care. Go home. And then what are we going to do on the third day? We're going to go for a walk. Do you understand how irritating it is? It's just silly. And then you go, okay, finally, when do we attack? Well, we're all going to attack on the seventh day. Awesome. What are we going to do? We're going to yell really loud. You know, that's... Do you ever get to kill people? Yeah, but that's later, okay? I mean, what a bizarre chain of events. So let me clarify a couple things. Number one, it is most likely that all the nation of Israel did not march around. 
Now, that's always how I pictured it in my mind. I've always pictured it that you got all the kids, moms and everybody, and they all kind of walk around the big thing, right? Now, that actually would be not a wise choice. First of all, it's going to take forever to move two million people around an enormous building. Now, it covers this walled area covers eight to nine acres. I would assume that they're going to bring an army. This is a battle. This is not a field trip, right? So they leave everybody within eye shot and they know what's going on. Everybody can gather up to a certain degree, but the armed men are the ones that are going to go in. Not all of them. Remember, they have a standing army right now of 600,000 fighting men. They're only going to take a contingent because they don't need that many. Jericho's not that big. They know once they get in, they'd start running over each other if they carried too many men. So they're going to cut it down. And if you have a smaller contingent walk around Jericho, it takes approximately 30 minutes. That's it. You know, we usually make it real dramatic in our minds. It's the whole 2 million people. They walked for hours, blah, blah, blah. No, very simple. You get a huge contingent of soldiers. You organize them in line and they walk around it in 30 minutes and they go back home. Now, It says, I want you to have the fighting men up front, and then I want you to have some priests who are blowing horns. Now, what type of horns are these? Israel, ancient Israel, used two types of horns. One is a ram's horn. We commonly know that as what? A shofar. That's the, ew, it smells goat head horn, right? Where you blow it and it sounds terrible, okay? That's this horn. That's the one that almost sounds like a conch shell, if you've ever heard one of those things, right? So it's kind of this sound, and everyone's like, wow, that was it? That's all you got? Then they have silver horns, horns made of silver. These horns are used to call assemblies and call for war. Most commonly, now they can both be interchanged, but most commonly, silver is used for war. Ram's horns are used for festivals. You go, what, why a festival? When they would have holy days, they would blow the shofar, and the shofar normally meant God is among us, and they're called the horns of jubilee, meaning let's be joyful, God is here. That's the horns that are now going to march into war, right? Is this really going to be a war? You're going to find out it's actually not. If it was a war, they would have brought the silver horns. This isn't a war at all. This is something totally different couple other pieces we need to know it says do it for six days have the priests seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark everybody remembers the ark of the covenant that means god is in there god's presence is going around the city all right then it says on the seventh day you're going to hear seven 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 all over the place why that's god's number that speaks of perfection that means god is in the midst he's doing something On the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times with the seven priests blowing the seven trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast, then have all the people, that means everybody watching, the whole nation, shouts, one huge shout. And he's going to tell them what to yell here in a second. Then the wall of the city will collapse. That literally means fall in its place. Right? That's all it means. And the people will go up. Every man will go straight in. All right. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Because he is now demanding Joshua to step out and lead the people into something impossible. Have you ever in your life 
screamed at a wall and had it fall down. Okay, it was no more doable back then than it is right now. Now, praise the Lord, okay, because if we're at a rally and everyone just starts screaming and all our walls just collapse, that would be bad. It's not a normal thing. It's called a miracle. Yay, right? So, when you talk about miracles, it's impossible, and everyone's going to doubt you, and everyone's going to doubt themselves and say, this is a stupid plan, why are we doing this? And there stands God. And he says, you do it because I told you to. That's it. I'll do the work. You do what I asked you to do. That's all. Let's pick up the story next. Verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, that was his dad, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. That's it. Follow God in his word. What does it say in his word? Live like that. Don't sit there. If you're still questioning, still arguing with God, well, that's not really the best way to do it. I think it would be better if I did. Do it my way. That's it. Why are you arguing with me? Next one. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets. And the ark of the Lord of the God's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All right, here's the order. First, armed guards under their tribal banners. How many tribes of Israel? Twelve. All right, fantastic. That was awesome. Nobody said anything. Uh, they, in their fighting contingent, they would select some out of every tribe. So there's 12 banners, big, long flag things. They hold it up, and there it would be Dan and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Reuben, right? All these different guys. As you walk forward, those soldiers with swords on their side would march under that banner. And here they come. They whine like a snake coming out of their camp, and they start to go around the city. Now, here's where all of Jericho is watching their stomachs tighten they're ready they're getting all amped what's going to happen they're getting their swords ready they're getting their volley of arrows ready for a siege and it sure is going to look like a siege because a siege you surround the city but as they go they surround the city and after a half hour they wind back home that's going to mess with anybody's head so jericho is highly confused what in the world was that all this time it says armed guards are in front, seven priests with trumpets, Ark of the Covenant, rear guard, the remaining army. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. That's proclaiming God's presence over and over. Constantly blowing the shofar that God is among them. God is among them. Always going around the city, blowing the trumpet. But Joshua had commanded the people... Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. Meaning shout with everything you have. But when we walk around, we are silent. Only God talks. Right when I was typing this up, I began to think about our last series of Revelation. Do you remember right before everything got super crazy in Revelation, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And there's that eerie silence where everyone takes this breath and then it hits. That's exactly what is about to happen here. They march through and everyone's watching them and they say nothing. There's no shouting. There's no crying. It's just building this tension. 
They're blowing this trumpet. God is here. God is here. And he's surrounding you. That's got to be freaky. So we had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. And the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing their trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them. The rear guard followed the ark of the Lord. By the way, that's the last mention of the ark. After we just heard it mentioned eight times. The last mention of the ark of the covenant in all of the book of Joshua. Right at the beginning, it shuts down. While the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once, returned to the camp, and they did it for six days. The only reason Jericho's not blasting out of their city walls and going and attacking all these little horn players is because they're scared to death of God. He keeps the enemy where the enemy needs to be while he's doing his job. They're still terrified. Now, there might be loosening up around day six, Right? Going, really, how long are you going to do this? I mean, we could sit here and be here all month long. But I'm in here. I'm eating up my storehouses of food. What are you doing? Either attack us or go away. Right? On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. That takes about three hours for an army to do. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, meaning the long one, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Stop. What'd you say? I said the city and all that's in it are going to be harem or devoted to the Lord. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That wasn't the deal. You're like, well, what does that matter? Okay, here's how warfare works. I go in, I risk my life, I get stuff for it. We all clear on the rules? All right, I'm going to go in, I'm going to start hacking someone with a sword. At some point, someone may hack me with a sword, therefore I die. Now, if I'm going to go put my life on the line, I get what's called the spoils of war. So anything that you own, if I kill you, I get to take your stuff. Joshua just announced that they're about to walk into a massive military campaign and get nothing for it. How do we know that? That's what the word means. It's devoted to the Lord. Don't touch his stuff. Jericho is mine, he said. You're going to go in. You're going to do all this stuff. Actually, I'm going to do the majority of the work. You storm in, kill everybody, get everything out of there. Don't touch it. My stuff. The soldiers are going to be a little disappointed in that. So I work really hard and I risk my life and my family and everything like that for nothing. Yep, that's exactly what I said. I'll give you other stuff. Not that. All right. It says, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute. Remember her? She's the one that helped the spies. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away. Look at verse 18. Keep away from the devoted things. What's devoted? Everything. This word harem is described in Leviticus. The very end of the book of Leviticus talks about what stuff is devoted to God. Dedicated to God. It's also translated devoted to God and utterly destroyed. You're like, how can you? Those don't work together. What are you talking about? Sure they do. Do you remember how animal sacrifice works in the Old Testament? Animal sacrifice works like this. I sinned, so I go get a little cow, 
right? Cow's got to be good looking, right? Because it's got to be uh, without, you know, imperfection. I then lay my hand on the animal as a symbolic gesture of my sin is now going to be transmitted to this animal. Then what do the priests do? They kill a cow, they drain out the blood, and then they take selected portions, the best of the cow, and that is God's. How do you give something to God? Like right now, if I had something, let's say that this is a dollar, and we talk about giving our money to God, how do you give it to him? He doesn't seem to pick it up, right? So, seems kind of foolish. So how did they give the best portions of the cow to God? Everybody remember? Burn it. Boy, is that a waste, right? Isn't that what it feels like? You set it on the fire, all these different portions, and they burn into charred remains. That's it. All done. Can you imagine that these priests have to do this every day? They're glorified butchers, right? Cut, hack, hey, bless you, bless you, bless you, throwing meat all over the place, right? They're just cutting stuff. Now, after a series of doing this for years, can you imagine some of the priests aren't exactly super religious? Sure. I mean, it's just like everything else. They were born into it. So now they think, I'm cutting out all the best stuff and I'm burning it up. This is a waste. Every once in a while, you've got to assume that they started going, this is ridiculous. I could be living off this stuff. And they set a little bit aside for them. A little bit for me. Oh, look, burn, burn, burn. God, you're getting a lot. Look at you. Look at you. Oh, me. Right? And they began to take some of the devoted things. Did that ever happen in the history of Israel? Yes, it did. As a matter of fact, they considered it such a waste, they started offering blemished animals because they thought if we're only going to burn them, who cares? Right? Ah, it's exactly what we would do if we were doing it. How do I know that? Because of how we deal with the issue of tithe. What do you think? You think it's any different? No, of course not. This city, Jericho, is the first city taken. What do we know about tithing? You give the first fruits. He said, you walked in, Jericho's mine. I'll give you all the other cities. This one's mine. Everything you see there, don't touch it. It's my stuff. God, why do you need it? You don't need money. You won't even take it when I throw it at you. I want you to burn it. What do you mean burn it? Why would I do that? That's a waste of resources. Is it? Or am I just trying to break you from being greedy? Oh, look, you make money your God. That's the problem. Do you understand why the Bible talks more about money than it talks about heaven? Because it's our God. That's why. Does God need your money? Nope. He goes, for all I care, burn it. You don't hang on to it. That's all I care about. Get it away from you. Because as much as you get so enwrapped, this is mine, it's mine, it's mine, I work for it, it's all about me. He said, what is wrong with you? I want the first, I want the best. Otherwise, your heart goes astray. All right, God, what do you want me to do with it? I want you to throw it away. Really? Yep, really. Uh, now then everyone's going to come in and go, well, the new Testament doesn't talk about tithing per se. That was a 10%. It talks more about offering. Okay. I get it. Right. <laughs> Is not the concept the same. We're greedy and God's trying to stop that. That's all. All right. However that works in your life. I don't know, but I know it feels like a waste, but I think that's the point. 
goes back. It says this. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and you will bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold, the stuff you're not going to burn, the articles of bronze that don't burn and the iron that you're not going to burn. Those are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. It's my stuff. Verse 20. So how to go? When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, all the people gave a loud shout. Now that would cause panic. In Jericho, that's part of the plan. But what did they yell? They shouted, I, the Lord, have given you this city. They would all shout it all at the same time. The wall collapsed, came down. What's interesting is most of it fell outward. All right, and I'm going to tell you why here in a moment. The wall collapsed and every man charged straight in. They took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, destroyed with a sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses pronounced a ban on everything in Canaan that that part must be destroyed. When they went in, they destroyed everybody, including kids. Are we clear on that? Anybody have a problem with that? You might. And we're going to talk in a couple weeks about why this is okay. Why this scenario is different from other war scenarios. But I need you to understand, Israel didn't walk into a war. They didn't do anything about knocking the walls down. This is God's business. This is not for them. They weren't allowed to take any plunder from this fight. This was not for them. It was not for selfish gain. This was all for God, right? So they put the stuff in the storehouses. So Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, verse 22, go into the prostitute's house, Rahab, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done this spying went in and brought out Rahab. Clearly her house didn't fall down. Remember her house is in the wall. So they didn't really have to look for the scarlet cord. They just looked for the one standing tower, right? Okay. Hey, I think that's her house. Thank you, Sherlock. So the young man who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Okay, two funny things happen. First of all, you can imagine when everything collapses and not her house, Jericho gets an idea, right? Hey, ah, and then they all die, right? Because they know that somehow she's with the bad team in their minds. Second thing is, now Israel goes, all right, we rescued you. And you can imagine, they're elated. They're fired up. We did, oh my gosh, the walls just came down. You guys didn't kill us. This is amazing. And where do we get to go? And they usher them. They get right to the camp of Israel and they turn. And they stick them outside. You guys wait out here. They're like, what are you doing? That's terrible. Why are you putting us outside the camp? You guys are Gentiles. Well, I know we're Gentiles. Well, you can't come in the camp. You're unclean. Well, what do we got to do to be clean? Well, that's the good news, bad news scenario. Okay? So the good news is, we saved you. Yay, us. Bad news, all your guys have to be circumcised, then you can come in. The guys are like, what? I didn't sign up for this, right? All of a sudden, they end up getting brought into the camp. The Gentiles are not allowed in until they become Jews in that. Now, is this how they handled all their warfare? No. Any cities outside the Canaan region specifically, these were the rules for Israel. They had to go up to the city and ask them if they wanted a peace treaty. 
They gave them an opportunity for safety. If they agreed to it, they were not to fight them, but to make them their subjects. Anyone outside of Canaan. If they did not agree to it, they would fight in battle, and then they could take the surplus for war. All right? In general, outside of this region that God is bringing judgment on, they had to do warfare with all types of rules and peace. Okay? But this is not their fight. This is God's fight. That's the difference. So, it says this, Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. All right. Here's what we know. Jericho, because of the prominence of this story, was the second most popular, the second major dig ever done in the Middle East in modern day. Jerusalem was the first. Jericho was the second. The first known archaeological dig happened in 1867. Then 1890, then 1907, then 1930. But in 1952, a woman by the name of Kathleen Kenyon went in, did a massive dig, and blew the story wide open. Kathleen Kenyon's dad is Sir Kenyon, who was the director of the British Museum. That is the largest, arguably the best, museum in all the world. If you ever want to know where all the cool stuff is, it's in the British Museum, right? The British Museum is famous for grabbing stuff all over the world and taking it back home to their area, all right? Most people hate them. Every other museum hates them. But they got all the cool stuff. His daughter goes out and makes an archaeological dig from 1952 to 1958, and she found a problem. Okay? So I want you to write this down so you get an idea. Okay. It is believed by most scholars... That Joshua arrived to take Jericho in 1220 B.C. I want you to write that down. 1220 B.C., right? Now, remember, when we talk about B.C., the higher the number, the more we're going back into history. So 1500 is older than 1200, right? And that's how it works. So 1220 B.C. When she did the archaeological dig, here's what she found. Jericho was destroyed in 1500 B.C. Write that down. It was not resettled as a city until 1000 B.C. Write that down. What's the problem? There was nobody home when Joshua knocked. This created one of the biggest dilemmas and debates in archaeology and the Bible today. It is a massive debate that rages every day in the archaeological world. What happened at Jericho? Her findings and other people after that were the Bible is wrong. And a huge portion of archaeological digs are under the impression right off the bat, the Bible's not accurate. And this proves it. Now... Another gentleman came in and examined her findings. She dug from 52 to 58, but her works were not published until 82, 83. So only later scholars were able to look at them. She just published her findings, but not her research. Modern scholars are examining her research. And in 1990, a gentleman by the name of Bryant Wood did a heavy examination of her findings and said, I disagree with her. I believe that Joshua did indeed take Jericho 
but he took it in 1400 BC. Now that's 200 years different than all the other scholars believed. Either way we look at it, our dates are wrong or the Bible is wrong. Okay? Here's what's intriguing about what she found at the settlement. So, first of all, let me explain what we know about Jericho. Jericho has the distinction of being called the oldest city in the world. It was settled approximately 8,000 B.C. So we're going way back. That's 10,000 years ago. They have evidence of it being settled 7,000 to 8,000 B.C. And it's been continuously settled on and off throughout all of history up until this point. Why? Because in that area of the world, there's very little water. And there is a massive water spring at Jericho. So people are always going to settle in that region. It's 670 feet below sea level. That gives it the distinction of being the world's lowest city. All right? It is located in modern Tel Es Sultan. What is a Tel? A Tel is a big mound of dirt. The ancient city of Jericho has not been fully dug up. As a matter of fact, it's been broken down and built on and broken down and built on so many times that by the now, Jericho, and by Joshua's day, had 34 different walls. So when we talk about the walls falling down, we're going, which walls? What are you talking about? It's that ancient of a city. The mound itself over there is, and I wrote this down, the mound is 65 feet high by 400 by 200 yards in size. It's just a big pile of dirt. When Kenyon went over there, she cut a 20 by 20 yard radius and dug down, and that's where she found all her stuff. A relatively small dig. Now, it was settled early and constantly due to the huge water, but the walls that we know were built about 2000 BC. All right. And, um, here's the thing what she found and what he found in her research was astounding. First of all, he believes that it is accurate to the Bible. She disagrees. But here's what she did find. She found that this is an earthquake region. Just like the Jordan River being blocked by an earthquake causing a mudslide likely to stop the Jordan River so they could walk through it. It's likely that an angelic earthquake hit at the exact same moment that they shouted. I call it an angelic earthquake because I believe that all the angels were waiting there with their hands on the wall for the go. Then they went, smash, and they shoved it down. Now, we call that an earthquake, okay? So I think it probably looked exactly like an earthquake. I think it probably felt like an earthquake, and all the walls got knocked down. So first of all, we know it's an earthquake region. All her findings were that the walls collapsed, the walls that were last built here. We also found out that there were huge storages of grain found in Jericho. Why is that important? Because it means three things. Number one, they were not taken by siege. Right? What do you do in a siege? You eat up all your grain. All the grain storehouses were full. That means they were surprised. It was not a long ordeal. It was instantaneous. That agrees with the biblical account that they just marched around, ran in and took it. Number two thing that it means is that it wasn't taken by whoever took the city. That never happens. Grain in that day was so valuable, it was not only used to eat, but it was used to trade with. It's money. It's like if you found a city and all the cash was laying on the ground. 
The only reason that a city that got crumbled by an earthquake would have all their cash laying around is if no one was allowed to touch it. That agrees with the biblical account. Third thing. The biblical account says that the spies, right before they took the city, were hid by Rahab where? On her roof, underneath flax that was drying. Because they had just crossed the Jordan River during its flood season, which happens during what? Harvest. She had harvest. The flood stage was at harvest, and they just finished the Passover, which happens at harvest. If you just brought in all the harvest, what would you have most of? Grain. It hadn't been used up yet. You just got it off the fields. All the findings she found are consistent with the biblical account. She also found a couple other interesting things. Not only did she find that it was a two-walled city, which remember Rahab's house was in the middle. They believe there's two walls, 15 feet apart, six-foot inner wall, 12-foot outer wall. But when she went in and examined it, she found that there was a 15-foot revetment wall. This is a big dirt rock thick wall that slopes, all right, but very sharply. That's the whole idea that you can't use a battering ram to get through it. It's so thick, no one can get through it. On top of that was likely a 8 to 12 foot mud brick wall. That's where they would put the houses in, right? That was up on top. Here's what's intriguing. When she dug down, It showed that all the mud brick wall had fallen outward and fell in such a way as to give a ramp for all the outside people to run up and go attack. Does that make sense? So God just did the impossible. He shoved all the walls outward, gave them stair steps so all the enemy who could walk right in and start fighting. All those findings are in archaeology. Powerful. Last thing that she found was... She found they were all blackened or reddened in charred remains, which means when they moved the rock, they could find that it fell first, then it was burned. Is that not exactly what we just read in scripture? So what do we do with all this? Well, either the Bible's wrong or we got to fix some of our dates. I think that's more likely. Because I'll tell you this, Jericho took that, Joshua took the city. There's no doubt in my mind. Let's finish the story. Verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. You know who she became? She married a guy named Salmon, right? Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, right? She's Ruth's mother-in-law. Go back and read the story of Ruth. Ruth married Boaz. That's his mom. Man, how wild is that to have Rahab as your mother-in-law? Right? No matter what she has on you, you know what she did for a living. (laughs) Moving on. She's David's great-great-grandma. And, of course, she was in the line of the Messiah. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Why? Because I think God wanted a constant reminder of what he thinks about sin. This is a city devoted to him. Don't touch my stuff. This happened 500 years later under King Ahab. A man by the name of Hiel tried to rebuild the city of Jericho and lost both of his sons in the process. 
and it never got rebuilt. The New Testament city of Jericho is a totally different city. It's not even in the same area. So, did this come true? All the way up till today. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Boy, isn't that an amazing story? How many times did God say, don't touch my stuff? What do you think happened? Right, next week we find out someone touched his stuff. Okay, no matter how many times you tell people, they're not listening. They're looking at you, right? Just like church. They're not listening, right? They're not listening to what's going on. They're not listening to what God has to say. And he told them, don't touch my stuff. They touched his stuff. And it's about to bring havoc, and it's going to cost this man more than he ever imagined. We as servants live lives of obedience, amen? We follow God at his word. We do what he asks us to do, no matter how silly or wasteful it appears, because God knows what's going on. We don't. So every morning, we as servants wake up and we say what? Master, what do you desire from me today? You woke up this morning, you walked into his house, and you have sat here, and I hope every one of you have made that request of God. Lord, what do you want from me today? I hope we go out and have a wonderful day of living as a servant of God. Let's close in prayer, and we'll close with a song. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us, for being the God of the impossible, that all the things that you have told us you would do will come to pass. The things that you ask us to do that seem like a waste or the things that you ask us to do that seem so inefficient. Oh God, those are questions of obedience. May we say yes, Lord, first time, right away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.